Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I, for I do not forget thy law. Plead my case, redeem me, revive me according to thy word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek thy statutes. Great are O Lord, revive me according to thine ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, and yet I do not turn aside from thy testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Thy word is truth, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. Boy, <laughs> there's a lot. Obviously, 119 is about God's word, and it's just prolific all the way through. But this, this one's a powerful one. Um, uh, what occurs to me is uh, the greater context of God's word, its coherency and consistency. Uh, we know this man, the psalmist, is in no danger of losing the love of the Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so what he's really praying for is that he would continue in a growing way to apprehend God's love, to take greater hold of it. Um, I'm struck by the, the passage, that one verse there that says, Greater thy mercies. And I'm, and I'm reminded of Jeremiah, as you might be, in Lamentations 3. Great are, thy, great are thy mercies, new are thy mercies every morning. That's not, that's not um, new mercy. It's new mercies every morning. God is consistent. They'll never go away. We just need to, appre we just need to apprehend them. Comprehension's a wholly different matter. That's, that's impossible in this estate to fully comprehend. But apprehension... It's not only our duty, it's our joy to apprehend the mercies of the Lord. And the primary means by which we do that is apprehending God's word. So as it's delivered to us now, I would encourage you, sit, but don't sit too far back in your seat. Don't sit too far back in your seat. Sit forward, listen, and apprehend the word as it's delivered to us. Amen. Turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. And we're continuing in our, our study, this wonderful prophecy. And your notes are in your bulletin. The notes, I encourage you to grab those as well. Use them to take notes and follow along and hopefully learn this passage. Come to understand it. Um, Zechariah 9 will be the text that we look at. Um, and uh, um, this is indeed God's word. Let me encourage you to stand together with me as we read it out of reverence and respect for his word and for him. Hear now the word of our Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. The eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath, also which borders on it, Tyre, Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also, Ekron, for her expectation, has been uh, confounded. Moreover, 
The king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. And I, will and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah, an Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. And now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And for, um, as, uh, for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord will bow, will blow the trumpet, and will march in the storm winds of the south. And the Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stone will drink and be boisterous as with wine, and they will be filled like a, sacrificed basin, a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are, are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? Grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine virgins." Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to gather here now and spend time fellowshipping around this portion of your word, a passage that you ordained for every one of us this moment to hear, to fellowship with you in. I pray you'd open our eyes, be able to understand this text as you have given it. And then, Lord, we would be built up and refreshed in Christ and that, Lord, you would be exalted and we, your people, would be comforted. That, Lord, we would be emboldened to serve you in this land. Bless this time, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today, I think it is still most likely the case that if you go out to the public and ask just anyone on the street, what's the, what, what first comes to your mind when you think of, of God? I think still a vast majority will say love. In fact, I think that same vast majority probably could even finish the most well-known passage in the Bible for God so loved the world. And that's rightly so, because God's word says God is love, 1 John 4. This is an attribute of God, and thus it is it, that attribute, that description, that reality is on every page of God's word. And if you have eyes to see, you'll see it in your life every day. Well, is it attested to in Scripture? We think of, for example, Psalm 136, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord, to the God of gods, for His loving kindness is everlasting. This psalm goes on another 20 
four times saying God's love is everlasting. God clearly is a God of love. You think of the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son and how it pictures the heart of the Father, God our Lord, whose heart goes out to the Son in his sin. God's love is everlasting. I think of Jesus Christ willing to go to the cross, even on that cross, willing to give his life up for all of his people who at that moment had rejected him. They were in the, um, um, uh, what would you say, the uh, worst place they could possibly be, denying Jesus Christ, yet he went to the cross. Why? Because he loved them. So we believe and and profess indeed God is love. He's a God of love. But we also recognize that because of his justice, he also is a warrior. Love is what God is. The warrior is the result and the overflow of his justice and his holiness. We read such passages like Exodus 15, 3 and, and following. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. God is a warrior who overthrows the enemy. Psalm 45, the sons of Korah wrote, God, thy, thy sword is on thy, thy thigh, O mighty one. In thy splendor, in thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride on victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. God is a warrior. In fact, the book of Zechariah, uh, I haven't referenced this much, but throughout this book, the theme that comes to the full, one of the main themes is God is the Lord of hosts. 52 times that expression is found in this prophecy. The theme of this prophecy, one of which is God is a warrior. Our warrior God is on the throne of this universe. Well, brothers and sisters, Zechariah chapter 9 beautifully weaves these two truths about God into one beautiful, glorious picture. Before we address this chapter, let me give you a quick uh, um, um, overview of this last section of Zechariah. To this last section. Zechariah has three main sections, as you've seen. Zechariah 1 through 6 are the visions that God gave Zechariah to comfort the people of God in his generation who were being oppressed, who were trying to build the temple and being opposed, who were struggling with the famine, um, who, 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 have, who, who found life to be difficult. And those six chapters contain eight visions given to comfort and console God's people. Then chapters 7 and 8 is the center section of this prophecy. Um, six chapters before, six chapters after. It's the crux, as I described it last week. It's the crux interpretum. It is the um, thing upon which both sections of Zechariah, 1 through 6, 8 through 14, rest. And what is that? And that is the warning, the exhortation that God gives for you and I to, to abandon all attempts to placate God in your walk to get out of the placation business, to live by the grace of God. That's what 7 and 8 is all about. In fact, if you and I don't do that, that won't forfeit God's love or his blessings or all of the wonderful things referenced in this passage, but it will certainly forfeit us enjoying them 
It will certainly rob us of the joy and the strength of the Lord. And so Zechariah comes and says, brother and sister, God comes. Whatever you do from this point forward, all of those visions notwithstanding, and all of the prophecies in the next section, do not relate to God on the basis of your religious activity. Relate to God on the basis of his Christ, period. All right, that then leads us to the last section, 9 through 14, which is the prophetic section. And in this section, will you notice with me verse 1 of chapter 9? He says, the burden of the word of the Lord. Now, yours will probably say oracle, and that's primarily how this word Messiah is translated, oracle throughout Scripture. But unfortunately, it's not the best translation. Because when we think of oracle in the English, we think basically of a message given by God to someone. A communication of God to man. But the word here is not simply that. It is that. But it carries the idea of a burden. Of a weight too heavy to bear. For example, in Jeremiah 20, we read, I proclaim violence and destruction. Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. You know what? what? God's message to Jeremiah resulted in conflict in his life. It was a burden to him. And I know most of you know that burden. In fact, perhaps all of you. You have been in those situations where you proclaim God's word, you share God's word, and people don't like what you share, and you're afraid that they might persecute you. That's the burden of the gospel. That's the burden of God's word. Feeling that sense of, if I share this, God, I'm going to get nailed. And that's exactly how Jeremiah felt. But then it goes beyond that. So Jeremiah says, but if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in, my, in his name, then in my heart it, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm, not, and I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. So there's also that sense of burden that I've got to share this. I've got to share this message. And, but when I do, I get in trouble, right? I mean, there's, that's the burden. And then the, the content. I've got to share to my, to my dying parent, who, who's not saved, that if they don't turn from sin, I'm going to share once again, they're going to perish in hell. And that's not a popular message. That's a burden, God. And that's the burdens that God gives with the oracles. Now get this, brothers and sisters. Verse 9, we, we read, the burden of the word, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 1, the burden of the word of God. Now skip forward to chapter 12, and you're going to read, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And what you find then is this last section of Zechariah, this last prophetic section, is composed of two burdens. The first burden of of chapters 9 through 11 deals with the non-believing nations and God's justice towards them, but the grace he gives to his people in in, in strengthening them to endure during this time. And then in chapter 12 through 14, the burden primarily revolves around God's disciplining, tempering grace in the lives of his people, molding them and shaping them. In essence, God tells his people here, 9 through 14, this is your future. This is what lies in the future. So the first oracle, 9 through 11, 
Um, we're gonna, I'm not going to preach through it like I have one through six. I'm going to approach it more like seven through eight, and that is simply I want to give you a flavor for it. So this week we're going to look at chapter nine, and then next week we're going to look at the next section, 12 through 14, and get a flavor uh, for that, trusting that if you want, I, I simply want to whet your appetite so that you might dive into this passage on your own to this uh, section. So today we're going to look at God is a warrior, God is a prince of peace, and uh, God is the Prince of Glory. So notice with me, verse uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 1. First, his work as a prince of war. All right? Notice it's first addressed, addressing known enemies. Notice with me, verses 1 through 2. The burden of the word of the Lord is against. So this is a, a vision of conflict. It's a vision of woe. It's a vision of condemnation, of hacking. Okay, of a warrior. The burden of the, of the word of God is against the land of Hadrach, which is the extreme northern part of, of Palestine, with Damascus as its resting place, a little bit south, the capital city of Syria. The eyes of, 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 of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are towards the Lord. And Hamath, which also at one point in the history was the northernmost frontier of Israel, also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, a little bit further south, though they are very wise. So in essence, if you look at, at the geography, God is giving a, a, um, an oracle against um, these cities, which lie on the route one would take if you were a conquering army. So God is describing a conquest of Palestine here. Now, it is um, amongst uh, commentators, there's debate. Is this talking about something that's already happened, or is this something that's going to take place? Now, those commentators that believe that, that 9 14 is prophecy, it's about what God is going to do with his people and the nations, um, all agree that this is describing one event that would take place, one conquest that would take place in very short order for God's people. Remember the day here is 520? We're talking roughly 200 years later. Less than 200 years. And that conquest is the conquest of Alexander the Great over Palestine. Um, Boyce wrote these words. The remarkable thing about the first section of this um, rehearsal of judgment powers is that it accurately foretells the conquest of the eastern Mediterranean coastlands by Greek armies of Alexander the Great. And that's how I'm going to take this passage as well. Notice with me verses 3 through 4. For Tyre built herself a fortress, in Hebrew, a wall, a massive wall, and piled up silver like dust and gold, like the mire of the streets. Silver and gold were so common in Tyre, it was like the dust and the dirt in so many of the ancient towns. Behold, you're never going to believe this, the Lord will dispossess Tyre, cast her wealth and the word in the Hebrew is very broad. It can refer to any kind of benefit that you have. It could be physical wealth, money, or it could be your, your, um, uh, um, your, your armies, your uh, um, defenses. So he will cast your wealth, your armies, defenses, all that you claim to be that which is beneficial for you into the, the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Historically, brothers and sisters, the downfall of Tyre is an amazing story, and it is accurately prophesied in this passage and in Daniel. Let me give you some of the background. Tyre, you may or may not know, but on the coast, Tyre was on the coast of, of um, uh, Palestine, mid-center, mid. 
um, central, if you will. And it's right on the coast for many, many years. It wasn't out in the sea. It was built on the coast. And you know Palestine is the, is the uh, um, war ground of the ancient world. The big places where civilization was, was the Tigris, Euphrates, and in um, um, Egypt. And when those powers grew up and wanted to, uh, became strong and wanted to flex their muscles, they warred in Palestine. So many a city frequently was destroyed over and over and over and over again, which is why if you go to Palestine today, you have these massive mountains called tells, which used to be cities built upon each other over and over and over and over. All right, well, Tyre, at some point in its, in its history, got sick of that. And so many of the citizens moved off the, the coast onto an island one-half miles off the coast and began building the city there. And the entire city eventually migrated over. They built oh, two walls, not one, but two walls around the entire island, two of them, and then they backfilled in between those two walls with 25 feet of dirt. So this city was impregnable in the ancient world. And thus they amassed wealth like no one's business. They became a very, very prosperous city. All the while, armies and battles kept raging in Palestine. In fact, we know the Assyrians tried to conquer Tyre. 701 BC, 671 BC, 663 BC. They failed. And then when the Babylonians were in charge, they held Tyre under a siege warfare for 13 years. The city never fell. Why? Because they're in the ocean. The, the sea, the Mediterranean, because in the sea, they can get supplies in. They're not landlocked. So usually siege warfare, you starve them out. You couldn't do that with Tyre. So Tyre was one of those impregnable cities until Alexander the Great. He came in at seven months destroyed the entire city. He just didn't destroy it, brothers and sisters. When he took that city seven months after he got there, he, he raised it. He killed many of its population, enslaving the rest, chasing its, its armies into the sea as they fled for their lives. It's just as Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 16. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise, Break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. And I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord your God. That's exactly what happened. 200 years, less than 200 years. All of those cities, all of those kingdoms, all of those peoples who molested, tormented, persecuted, and killed God's people would be wiped away. Incredible. How did Alexander do it just briefly? Well, brothers and sisters, the half-mile distance between the shore and the city, you may or may not know, he filled that portion of the sea in with the debris from the old city of Tyre. So he built the massive walkway out, and his armies just marched on the city and raised it in seven months. Then he kept going. Notice with me, verse 5. He, he then turned his focus further south to the uh, Philistines. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza will, will writhe in great pain. Also, Ekron. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will, will, will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. God would so devastate the Philistine nation that all that would be left, left would be a mongrel race. And that simply in the Hebrew means a mixed race people. That's what all of us are here. I'm not, maybe we have a couple few, uh, pure 
pure Dutch here. I don't know if the uh, De Konings are, but I'm a mongrel, guys. I am. I've got, I've got Jewish in me. I've got Bohemian. Uh, I've got French. I'm not French. Dan's French. Uh, English, Scotch. I mean, we know what we are. We're the Heinz 57 nation, right? We are mongrels based upon this Hebrew word, meaning we don't have a nation that we can call our own. Right? We had to make our own nation. But these people this time had no nation. That's how bad the Philistines would be wiped off the earth. There would be no more nation for them. And they'd just see, simply be mixed-race people who could claim nothing as their home. That's how devastated God would take, uh, make the Philistines. But then skip down to verse 8, and you read something that on the, in the, if you just read through it fast like I did in the opening, you miss it. But if you look at the context, you realize this is a but moment, a, a behold moment, verse 8. But I, God, will camp around my house. And the word house there is not necessarily his temple. It could be the city and the environs around that city. I will protect my people because of an army, because of him who possesses by, who passes by and returns. I'm going to protect my people from Alexander. This world conqueror who's going to conquer all these cities I just described, all of your enemies, he will conquer them all. I will take care of that but he won't touch my people. Notice how it reads. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore, nor, and now I have seen Brothers and sisters, this is a quirk of the history. I remember studying this in, in my uh, degree in college. And that is when Alexander came to uh, Jerusalem, he had been raping and pillaging everywhere he went in the ancient world. Everywhere in Palestine, Asia Minor, Palestine, just creaming everyone and everyone who stood in his way, everything and everyone. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he comes, and he bows, and he's peaceful, and he's gracious and kind. And there's a lot of explanations in history, not only in history, but in current historians today, from a vision that Alexander got from the gods, telling him not to destroy Jerusalem, to God's people, the high priest coming out and placating, or... Um, flattering Alexander so much that he felt that the Jews were his were a um, were an ally there's a lot of a lot of a lot of explanations but brothers and sisters whatever you might hold to and I'll explain it if, if ever you're in my survey class you'll learn that uh, why I believe that happened but God but the, the point of this text is God did it God did it God protected his people here you will come and no further, says the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Joyce Baldwin wrote these words. Two links between this verse and chapters 1 through 8 are worth noting. So that none shall march to and fro. That phrase is identical in Hebrew with, quote, so that no one went to and fro in 714. And, and the mention of eyes of the Lord takes up the expression, the eyes of the Lord, which range through the entire world earth 410 in both contexts the lord's all-seeing eye purposes to defend and provide for his people so that's the first their known enemies anyone at that moment in their life they would call an enemy write it down if you went back in the time machine at 520 and said god or 518 here hey god's people write down who you think are the greatest threat to your existence as a people they'd make a list and everyone on that list were just referenced here and God is saying, I am going to take care of your enemies. Also, unknown. Because there's a lot of enemies, brothers and sisters. You and I can be in a dark room and we can see a little tiny spider with our flashlight and go, yikes, kill it. Little do you know, there's a shelub 
whatever, right? In the next room. And you're not worried about that because you're worried about that little tiny spider. Brothers and sisters, all known and unknown. Skip down to me to verse 13 because God keeps on going here. Notice 13. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. He's going to reunite the uh, people of God. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. Now, brothers and sisters, the word Greece is a broad term in the Bible. It could it also translate in Genesis as Javan. And therefore, commentaries say, oh, this could be that battle way, 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 way before this. But again, if you are of the commentary persuasion, the persuasion of many commentaries that believe this is prophecy, therefore this is of the future, the only people that this, the only event in history that this qualifies to be would be during the time of the Maccabean revolt. Boyce wrote these words. Since the only time in history that Jews have been at war with Greeks was during the period of the Maccabean revolt, the passage must refer to those years. And that is those who believe it's pure prophecy believe this is the Maccabean revolt. Let me give you the background real quickly. So after Alexander died in 323 BC, his kingdom, his massive kingdom was divided into, by four of his generals into four uh, sections. Greece was taken by Antipater. Asia Minor was taken by Antigonus. The eastern lands, including Judah, ultimately landed in the lap of the Seleucids. And the, and the Egyptians took, was, or I'm sorry, Egypt was taken by the Ptolemies. Now, initially, the Ptolemies had God's people, Judah. But the Seleucids uh, fought them and they got it. So by this time, 200 years after Alexander, God's people are under the Seleucid reign. And the Seleucid dynasty were wicked, wicked um, uh, um, people who, who, who thrived in abuse and torture and, uh, and hardship. It was a rough people. And it came to a head with Antiochus IV, known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. The reason why he, what he did, why he's called that, because this man had it out for God's people. Now, in our church, Bible survey, I'll explain to you why. But here, let me just tell you what he did. He, he suspended the daily sacrifices of the temple, no more sacrifice. He abolished the Sabbath. Do you know how he did that? He said, no more Sabbath. Now, this is how he's going to know if you're not him. He sent his soldiers on the Sabbath to attack God's people. Now, if God's people picked up a sword, the soldiers would keep on going. But if they wouldn't pick up a sword, and most didn't because it was the Sabbath and a sword was too heavy to pick up, according to religion, they felt that was violating the Sabbath, they would sit there and just take it. Well, the soldiers then would hack up the Jews. Okay, he destroyed copies of the scriptures, forbade circumcision, and erected pagan altars throughout Palestine. So this is what he did in his regency, in his reign. And then it came to a head in 167 BC when he ordered the Jews to sacrifice a pig on the altar. This is the foundation of Hanukkah. And that was what happened. Well, during this time in Syria, there was a Syrian soldier, a, a, a Seleucid soldier, who was forcing a Jew to sacrifice to a pagan god. And this Jew did it. And there was a priest named Mattathias who said, no. So he came up with his sword. Think of Samuel. This old priest pulls out this sword and he hacked up the Jewish worshiper. And then he turned the sword to the Syrian uh, soldier and hacked up the Syrian soldier. 
And then he and his sons, five sons, fled to the mountains and hence began the Maccabean revolt. He died soon after that. His son Judas uh, became the Maccabee and he became the leader of this revolt. And in essence, long story short, through their work, they liberated God's people from any foreign oppression, even though they were still in Greece, for a hundred years. You can read Boyce's description of what happened. But brothers and sisters, God, how did God handle the threat of the Seleucids? The threat of Antiochus Epiphanes? The threat of this abomination of desolation? How did he completely vanquish them through guerrilla warfare? Both are known and unknown. In fact, it's described in 14 through 15. Then the Lord will appear over them and and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm of the wind of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. This is all a description of what occurred in the Maccabean uh, revolt. And they will devour and trample on the sling stones. Any kind of arrows and stones that we've thrown at the Maccabees, they simply trampled them down because they were victorious. And the result was 100 years of celebration. Drink and be, they will drink and be boisterous with, with wine, and they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. Brothers and sisters, that's describing the victory and the joy that God's people had for 100 years during this time. So the first section is a prophecy of God destroying both known and unknown enemies. Now, as a context, God's people, when this passage was written, was um, subjected to fear. They were living in constant threat. If if you go to Nehemiah and to Ezra, you can read about the things God's people had to do because it was so dangerous living at this time. Their threat, their greatest opponent in their life were these peoples and these nations. And God's telling them, and you don't know anything until you get under Tychus Epiphanes. You think you got a rough now? I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of a greater, a greater enemy, a greater opponent. Christian, what is your enemy? You know, we've, we're living in a nation that has not had this kind of threat for 200 years. So as Christians, we're living in a, in a really easy life. So we read a passage like this and we go, okay, Greg, why are you spending so much time here? This doesn't have any relevance to me. This is the Maccabean revolt and Alexander the Great. What difference does that make in my life? Brothers and sisters, whether it's a physical army or cancer, whether it's a, a bad guy that, 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 that threatens your health or your welfare in the night, a robber, or whether it's a disease, whether it's a bad ruling of your government, whatever it might be, whether it be physical persecution, do you understand God is telling his people and what's so amazing about this passage, he made good on his word here again. We've gone back and we've seen all of the prophets prior to this. And we've seen God give so many prophecies of Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, which he already fulfilled. And the, and the glorious message of fulfilled prophecy is if God was true to his word then, what will he be now when he says all authority is, has been given to me? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, take comfort from a passage like this. All known, what would you write down as your enemy today? What would you write down that threatens you? All known and even the unknown. You have no clue what awaits you, brothers and sisters. None of us do. But God will take care of that as well. Why? Why? And that brings us to the center of this 
prophecy, and that is his work as the Prince of Peace. Notice with me, verses 9 through 12. We learn four things about our Prince of Peace here. Verse 9, what he is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is strange in the context of, this, of, this, of the world in which they live, but knowing what God's going to do, rejoice. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, clearly speaking of Christ. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt the full of a donkey. The immediate context, verses 1 through 8, details this horrible era where God conquers all of the enemies of God's people. And it, there's a contrast between how Alexander came to these people. What did he do? He conquered. He, he devastated. He, he tortured. He, they raped. They burned. They devastated. And then you got a king coming to Jerusalem. Do you see what the contrast is? This king, unlike Alexander, is just. And that doesn't mean he's just upright. That also means he does justice. That's the new of this Hebrew word, Sadiq. He does justice. Accordingly, it references the rule which governs uprightly, upholds justice, encourages holiness. God will never miss uh, something that has happened to you. He'll always take account of it. Secondly, would you notice he's humble and mounted on a donkey. The word humble is the word for a servant. He's a servant and mounted on a donkey, king, because in the ancient world, kings rode donkeys. That was the, that was the animal of royalty in the ancient world, David's world. And so he's this humble king. In other words, you know what that is? That's called meekness. He's going to be a king who has the strength to, to decimate all your enemies. But when he comes to his people, he will not break a bruised reed. That's who he is. He's this gentle, awesome warrior. He's the meek, glorious um, uh, potentate. All power, almighty, omnipotent. But is so gentle and so kind and so gracious. Notice, secondly, what he ultimately will do. Verse 10 I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. I'm taking away all implements of defense, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is referencing the final state. He's saying, and, and then, in contrast to these kings, I'm going to come and I'm going to take. So Zechariah is looking at the Christ event. To him, it's one event. We understand biblically it's a first coming and an interval and a second coming, and the second coming is going to usher in the final state where there will be peace and no more warfare, no more weapons, the whole bit. Zechariah sees it as one. And he sees this Christ event. When Jesus Christ comes, he'll come with meekness and kindness and humbleness and love but power. And in that context, he will usher his people into peace. Ultimately, peace between God and man, but also peace, literally, as it's talking about the weapons of warfare, gone. Well, what did he do? He, he can do this because of what he did. Notice with me verse 11, the basis. As for you also, because of the blood of the covenant, with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. A couple words here. First, the waterless pit. Let's start there. A waterless pit, what is it? That's a cistern without water. That's what God's people were living in, in exile. It pictures the exiles living in 
the, the diaspora. They, they live in a waterless pit. It's not going to kill them, but it's a pit in the desert with no water. It speaks of a harsh, difficult life. So we're talking about people living in a cistern. But then secondly, would you notice, because of the blood of the covenant, these people will be set free of the burden. What's the blood of the covenant? What's that reference to? Brothers and sisters, that is reference to the Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 accounts where God established, entered into a covenant with his people. Now remind yourself what that means. In the ancient world, when you made a covenant, literally the way it's, you write in the Hebrew to make a covenant is to cut a covenant. And the reason why they, tra- they, they don't translate it cut, but in Hebrew it's to cut a covenant. The reason why it's translated or why they say that is because they, you literally cut animals. You would cut them from top to bottom and divide them. And you'd line them up. So two nations want to enter into a relationship. The, the two kings that would have these animals cut. And then together, they would walk through between these cut animals with the significance staying, saying this. If I violate this covenant, you may do this to me. If I violate my word, let this be me. Well, when God entered into the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, what do we read? God entered through, but Abraham didn't. And by God going through the two half animals, do you understand what he was saying? He was saying, I will take the penalty for disobedience for both parties on me. Abraham, if you fail, I will die. And if I fail, I will die. Well, what what happened, brothers and sisters? Abraham and Adam failed. So what did God do? God became a man and he died to take the penalty for the breaking of the covenant of grace. Which means you and I today look at Jesus Christ as our payment for why we and in our our rebellion against God should not go to hell. Why? Because Christ took our punishment on himself. So what did God do? Get this, brothers and sisters. He is referencing the covenant he cut with Abraham to the brothers and sisters living in waterless places, dry places, hard places, difficult places. And he's calling them back to remember this covenant for it would set them free in their imprisonment. They'd be in prison, but they wouldn't. They'd be in a waterless place, but it would be passing through the valley of weeping. It would become a spring. Why? Because I'm gazing upon the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God by which I'm redeemed from my sin through the cross. Incredible. Now, before this warrior of peace, this prince of peace did that, this, pro- this passage prophesies that he's going to make a declaration that he's it. You think about it. Jesus had not done the triumphal entry. There could have been a valid debate. Is he really the promised one? But you know what the triumphal entry is? Which is which Matthew records from Zechariah these words. Now this took place, the triumphal entry that was spoken through the prophet Zechariah might be fulfilled saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Brothers and sisters, God is telling his people, I'm going to conquer these, both known and unknown known enemies, but with you, I'm the prince who's 
coming, deliver you from pain, suffering, and miseries, even in your waterless place, the pit in which you live. And all you and I need to do is to gaze upon that blood of the covenant. That's the implication here. That's the call. All right, that's what he did. Now what does he do? What does he desire? Notice with me verse 12, it gets better. Therefore, based upon that, stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. In the Hebrew, it literally is prisoners of hope. That's what every one of you and I are. We're prisoners of hope. We live in a fallen world. We live in a land where sin and misery at many times gets the better of us. But unlike the non-believers, we have hope. We are living in waterless places, but we have hope. This very day, I'm declaring that I will restore double to you. Brothers and sisters, I think the modern, or better yet, even then, the best picture of prisoners of hope is what's described in chapter 7 and 8. We're talking about uh, 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 people in a, a dry pits. Well, we talked about last week. Do you remember the waterless place that God's people, that you and I have the inclination to go every single day of our lives? It's to build cisterns that can hold no water. And so often right now in your life, your, ba- your biggest problem in your life is not the Assyrians. It's not Antiochus Epiphanes. Your greatest problem in your life is you and I reaping the sad consequences of you and I choosing to live by the basis of our, of our conduct, placating God, never able to do it, living with fear and um, joyless living, where we, where we are not delighting in the character of God, but we are living under a prison of our own making. Because we believe somehow, some way, my Bible reading, my church attendance, my religious activities, this is last week's sermon, we think somehow, in some way, that's going to make God love me more. And God's providence, I had a conversation with one of you who said, man, this morning I read this great question. Two great questions every Christian should ask. What would make God love you more? And the second question what would make God love you less? And the answer is nothing. But we don't live like that. We can confess it. But seven and eight is written to people who profess grace, but they choose to live by their conduct, by law. And God comes to these people in these waterless pits who try to, to get satisfaction and joy from so many things of this world of their own making, and they've got it in Christ. If you and I will simply rely upon the blood of the covenant, he will restore us double. Incredible. That's, brothers, so his desire is for you and I to come to the fount of life, to stay living in light of the blood of the covenant. That's God's desire. Return to the stronghold in the context, the blood of the covenant. Return to Christ and live and delight and bask in light at the base of of the cross. Enjoy your Lord. And then lastly, what is therefore his will as our prince of glory? Love this. 
16 through 17. And by way of footnote, there's debate. When does, when does the Maccabean revolt end and this final description of, of his glory begin? There's debate. Is it 15? Is it 16? I'm starting at verse 16. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. Why? This is the important one. Why? Why will God save them? Why is God kind to Israel and not kind to the Assyrians? Why is God kind to you and not to the non-believer? Why is he a warrior to many and yet a prince of peace to some? Why? Look at the text. For they are as the stones or jewels of a crown sparkling in his land. For what uh, comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the virgins. Let's talk about this briefly as we close. Why is it that God is kind to you? Why is it that God's, God has, Jeremiah 29, my plans for you are for welfare, not for calamity to give you a future and hope. Why is it that we can take a passage like this and know that we are the recipients of 9 through 12, the promises of 9 through 12? And 1 through 8 and and 13 through 15 all refer to the known and unknown enemies which still have yet to come. Why are we such blessed people? Why did God save you? What's the text say, brothers and sisters? The Lord will save them in that day. Why? For they are the stones of his crown. Do you know why you and I receive grace? It has nothing to do with what you and I have done. It's last week's sermon again. It's not because of your righteousness the Lord has given you this good land to possess, for you're a stubborn people. Deuteronomy 9.6. Why is God kind to you? Because in eternity past, this awesome God set his love upon you. Think about that. You're the wealthiest, richest person ever to have existed because God Almighty set his love upon you. And he made you a gem in his crown. From eternity past, God's purpose in your life was to be a gem in his crown. Now, what's the purpose of a crown for a king? And more importantly, the gems on the crown of a king. What's the purpose of the gems of the crown of a king? It's to proclaim the majesty, the magnificence, and the glory of the king. Do you know why God chose you? To proclaim the magnificence of the glory of the king. Listen to first, or Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. You know why God chose you? He chose you because he is going to be glorified and honored. Not just he, his grace is going to be glorified, honored, and celebrated because of you. Romans 9, 23, speaking of God's grace, whereby he is is patient towards us before we are believed. And he was patient, he did so, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Do you know, you're a vessel of mercy. A mercy. You're a diadem in his crown. And you were that before you were saved. You understand that? In God's mind, you were that. that what, that's the end game. That's what God's going towards. 
And because of that's the end game, that's what you are. That's why God's doing what he's doing in your life. He has, he's made you. He set his love upon you. He values you so much that he died for you through the blood of the covenant. He redeemed you. And he puts all of the things in your life to bring glory to his praise, to bring glory to his grace. And then finally, to bring you into glory, to enjoy his grace forever and ever, his person forever and ever. I love the phrase, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul said, but we have this treasure, the gospel, in earthen vessels, that the surpassing of the greatness of the power may be of God and not ourselves. I'm going to close with these words. Think about this. Well, (laughs) let's take that crown metaphor one more step. Brothers and sisters, you've got a crown, and it has the hope diamond in it, the greatest rubies you could ever imagine in in this crown. And you know what's happened? It's gotten tarnished. There's dirt all over the, the hope diamond. The rubies aren't, are no longer have their gleam. They just this, this crown has been sitting on this dusty shelf. What do you do with that hope diamond? What do you do with those rubies? Well, you know what you and I think God's going to do? You and I, by default, we think God's going to take that chisel, come to that dirty hope diamond, dig it out, and throw it away. Because it's dirty. Look how dirty that is. I can't have that on my crown. Dig it out and throw it away. That's what we think. What, but yet in reality, what would you do? You and I would go, that's the whole diamond. You don't dig that out. You clean it. Brothers and sisters, that's what you should say about your relationship with God. That's a child of God. He's not going to throw it away. He's going to clean it. And in the process of cleaning it, he's going to bring praise and glory before the angels in the world and in eternity future up over his grace that God would suffer long with people, rascals like you and me, who, who would prefer to build a cistern that can hold no water than drink out of the fresh pool of a bubbling brook, Jeremiah 2.13. But God does it because he set his love upon you. It's not because of what you and I do. It's because of what God has deigned to do in and through you to the praise and the glory of his grace. Brothers and sisters, what an incredible passage. And the result is, this ends with verse 17, what uh, comeliness and beauty will be theirs. What makes us beautiful? It's not us, it's God. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the virgins. This is the new heavens and the new earth where we are glorified and we are delighting in the glory of God's presence. Brothers and sisters, incredible prophecy God gave to his people struggling in the here and now. How many of you are struggling in the here and now? I'm not looking for a hand. How many of you are struggling in the here and now? Every one of you. Do you see what your hope is? It's not you and I bucking up and doing better. It's you and I coming to to a full realization of what we are in Christ, what he's done to make us that way, and what his plans are for us. May God give us the grace to delight ourselves in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible prophecy. And we know chapter 10, 11 just keeps it up. What an incredible section of scripture as you describe your your dealings with our known and unknown enemies. And yet the contrast between your dealings with us and how you have set your love upon us, not because of anything we have done, but because it pleases you to do, to exalt and glorify your grace through vessels like us.
God, we come to the table of the Lord, the blood of the covenant, a picture of that where Christ himself says, this is the blood of the covenant. And we know, Lord, therefore, this meal is a declaration that you have taken the consequences of our covenant breaking upon yourself. God, as we come to this meal, may we take it with the joy of the Lord. May we take it delighting in the knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's one here present who does not know you, who today even still there's a veil over their eyes, God, we pray you to take away that veil that they might behold the gospel, behold Christ, and be saved. And for the Christian who lives with that veil because of the broken cisterns that has become their joy, oh God, I pray that you would remove that veil, that they would behold the blood of the covenant, that they would return and they would receive double. Bless them, bless us, O Lord, we pray into Jesus' glory and praise. Amen. Amen.